Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Hannah Chiswick and I'm Laura Checkley and we are of course here to celebrate all things working class. Just say it, get it over and done with. Because if we don't, who the bloody hell will order? That's just a little clue as to who might be in this week with us, Hannah. Did you enjoy that? No, no one enjoyed that. Absolutely no <laughs> one enjoyed stop. it. carry on. As always, we sit down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got to where they are today. And on that note, who are we celebrating this week, Han? Well, I have to tell you, I hardly slept last night because I'm honestly so excited about this week's guest. When Laura and I first spoke about doing this podcast, we both agreed that this incredible woman was right up the top of our wish list. That's right. I can't actually believe she's agreed to sit down and chat with us pair of idiots, to be perfectly honest, but there we go. Speak for yourself. (laughs) This week's guest is a politician, author and podcaster, and it really won't take long into this introduction for you to guess who we're talking about because this woman is still very much in a minority of female voices in her field. Describing herself as quite rowdy in the chamber, this week's guest constantly pushes female issues to the fore and is the ultimate champion for gender equality, stating that she views one of the main priorities of her post to be making the topic of violence against women and girls a mainstream issue. This year for International Women's Day, she unforgettably read out the name of every woman killed at the hands of domestic abusers in the last year. A chilling and moving five minutes that brought the entire house to a silence. Braving professional and personal abuse, this woman is never shy to challenge the latent misogyny she and other female politicians describe as being rife in Westminster. In a recent Guardian interview, she said, The culture in Westminster is not an overtly sexist one. The culture in Westminster is one where people protect their own, but their own being men. Men are more likely to be protected by other men than women are to be protected. In a world where representation is so essential, this week's guest really feels like our girl at the coalface. And it is endlessly reassuring to see her standing up and daring to be herself, something that often seems like a political act in itself. She explains you get men, and it's always men on the opposite benches who treat you like a harridan for behaving exactly as they behave. When we were chatting yesterday, Laura described her as the Cathy Burke of politics. And if you know me and Laura, there really is no bigger compliment we could give. 
It is an honour and all honesty, a bit of a pinch me moment, to welcome this week's guest, the MP for Birmingham Yardley and Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding, the endlessly inspiring Jess Phillips. Hey! Thanks, it's very nice of you to say all those really nice things about me. I feel we a bit uh, bowled over. Do you? Yeah. I love Kathy Burke. Oh I'm, I'm so glad you took that as a compliment because, you know, I mean, we, I mean, she's a goddess, right? I mean, she's for us anyway. So but people throw it at me as an insult all the time. And I just think, oh, you're right. I am like Kathy Burke. Yeah, thank I'd you love very to much. be like Kathy Burke. Yeah. In the unlikely you. event anyone ever wanted to make a movie about me, that would never happen. I'd love Kathy Burke to play me. That would literally be goals right there. I, I think she's like the queen of most things. <laughs> she is the queen, the absolute queen. Is this going to be in vision when you put it on? The... No, absolutely no, no. not. No, Our no. vapes were out then. You can, <laughs> you can say that. Uh, I don't mind it being known. I just don't necessarily want people to watch me. What can it only be Vaping described? I literally just lectured some 19-year-olds when I was buying these children's <laughs> vapes. I said, you're not old enough to be buying these vapes. And they were like, oh, we are old enough as if I was IDing them. And then I was just like, no, I just mean, why the fuck are you starting to smoke? At no, this, kids at your aren't age? even bothering to get ciggies first, are they? They're just going no. straight to vapes. It's, it's madness. A 19-year-old young woman in the, my local corner shop. I'm in, I'm in uh, Walthamstow at the moment. Uh, it's where I live when I'm in London. And um, she was like, well, life's very hard. And I was just like, why is your life hard? Like your life isn't hard. And then I was like, also, smoking doesn't make your life less hard, you div. It makes it harder. <laughs> oh, no. And then I proceeded to buy a Vimto-flavoured children's vape, so I've got no leg to stand on. Vimto-flavoured. marched out the shop with a Vimto-flavoured... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that told them kids. So, Jess, we, we start each week asking our guests to take us back to somewhere that connects them to their working class roots. Uh, mm-hmm. Where would that be for you today? If you could take us anywhere, where, where would that be? Um, if I could take you anywhere, I would take you to Garrett's Green Lane, which happens to be in my constituency. And it would be to my grandma, uh, Peggy, uh, who, who doesn't get as many mentions, uh, but it would be to my grandma, Peggy's house. So in 1981, when I was born, inflation was wild and interest rates had gone up to like, I don't know, like 15%. Lovely. And so it's a bit like now. A little yeah. bit like uh, that, say. Yeah. It's, you know, we're basically living in 1981. And my mum, who had not worked, like I've got three older brothers and she'd not um, worked. Uh, but they had bought this ha- this bigger house in uh, South Birmingham uh, and then the interest rates rocketed. And so my mum was like, look, we can't afford it. If I, I can't afford to stay at home and look after the kids. So basically, I was shipped off to my granny Peggy, my grandma Peggy's house. Her name was Pe- Marguerite. Oh, oh wow! But everyone called her Swanky. Peggy. Yeah, those names when they shorten it makes no sense. Always blow my no mind. Sense. Marguerite. I mean, that's so <laughs> fancy. I don't know what business my grandma Peggy had been called Marguerite. <laughs> she was not a Marguerite at all. Um, but she, so I, uh, I, I basically was shipped off to their council house on Garrett's Green Lane in my constituency to be cared for pretty much uh, all, all day, every day, uh, while my mum went out to work. Uh, yes, and that is li- literally in my head, if I close my eyes and think about sort of working class environments, my, my grandma Peggy's house, it had, uh, it was like a sort of, you know, your standard two up, two down, 1930s council house on an estate. Yeah. And um, 
she lived there with my granddad Eric and uh, my nanny Mabel, mm. who was also was actually called Rose. Oh, called... stop! Stop! <laughs> I don't know what. Working class people do that a lot, but posh people do that a lot, don't they? Working class Irish people are all called Mary and so go by sure. a different name yeah, in my yeah. experience. Yeah. So true. Um, but so my middle name is Rose after my uh, nanny Mabel Rose. Yeah. Uh, but her name was Rose West. Maybe maybe she Ooh. had and she was married to a man called Fred West. So maybe she had foresight and that's why she went by <laughs> no. Mabel. Wow. Um, oh my god, yeah, right. <laughs> That's, that's pretty stick to Mabel there, Rose. Yeah, stick not the Mabel. same. Not 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 the same people. I must <laughs> stress. But she lived there. She was must have been. She was born in like eighteen eighty nine. My uh, yeah. nanny Mabel. Wow. Uh, yeah. So she was old, and so she was in like her nineties, and she had a sort of bed set up in uh, in the house, like downstairs. A bit like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, yeah, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> a bit like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And she taught me to gamble. Nice. Um, and she'd say, "Give us a kiss, and I'll lend you uh, and lend me sixpence." In a sort of like, I've gambled so much that I need you to give me sixpence. Um, <laughs> her and my granny Peggy, they were fierce women. And my auntie Mary, whose name was actually Mary, and went by Mary, contrary to what I just said. Wow. Uh, my auntie Mary, who was my grandma Peggy's sister, she didn't live there. At, oh no, I think she did live there at this point. So it was this house of very, very working class matriarchal women and my yeah. granddad Eric, who was just a really nice man uh, and uh, and just sort of kept quiet. But, I mean, this to me is the absolute pinnacle of the culture of working class households is that my granny Peggy had a deep freezer in her living room that she would she would throw over... A, a like you know, <laughs> yes. a, she would like throw over a thing like a like a sort of like an antimacassar, like uh, like a like a tablecloth to yeah. like, pretend that there wasn't a deep freezer in it. Love but she that. had a deep freezer in her uh, in her living room, and it was like the stuff of gold. It was like a, you know El Dorado when you opened it, like because <laughs> she used to make cakes. Like her job, I mean, she worked on the buses and she worked in munitions factories and stuff. Um, during the war, but right. in later life, in retirement, she was brilliant at decorating cakes. So she would make people's wedding cakes and things. And so she'd sit with one of those wheels, like piping cakes and things, uh, oh. and made us amazing birthday cakes and things. But um, she would make cream horns. You don't see a cream horn anymore. Really? Really see a cream, cream horn. horn yeah. But she would make hundreds of cream horns. I'm so sorry. What is a cream horn again? I know I know it, but is it's it like, like an ice cream cone that's made out of essentially the pastry of an apple turnover, filled with cream and a bit of jam. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. A cornet. Yeah, like, corn, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, like an ice cream cone. I'll get you one after. Yeah, please but do. I don't think they exist anymore. I think the cream ha- the, the cream horn has gone gone with focaccia and wild garlic has taken yeah. over. Do you remember those things that you get from the ice cream van? Was it an oyster? It was like an yeah, oyster. oyster. I you remember the oyster? <laughs> I had one on Sunday, yeah, oyster. Do you remember a Popeye? Uh, this is when I was a Screwball. kid, right? Screwball. When you talk about Screwball, things that yeah. you think of as really affluent, we talk about this on the podcast. Go like when I was younger, I thought, I thought as a little kid, the most like to get a Popeye. So basically, it was an ice cream with an ice lolly stuck in the top of a Mr. Whippy. Oh my god! And oh. my mum was like, "No, absolutely not. It's like an extra twenty p or whatever." And I thought that right there. Was I've the only ever seen that much. once. But you're yeah. you're absolutely right that that these things are. And not the way they used to be. And a 99 now costs for two pounds. I mean, I mean, I mean change the, the name. At least. The name. Yeah, at least <laughs> change the name. False advertising or what? 
but she had these cream horns and she would make hundreds of them and we would go to the freezer. Um, oh, and uh, she uh, also insisted as if it was doing us a kindness to put sugar in our tea. Uh, <laughs> I, I used to say, she used to say to me, don't worry, I won't tell your dad. And I used to think, please do tell him so he can he can intervene. Like, <laughs> I don't want this sugar. I don't want sugar in my tea. It tastes disgusting. She smoked fags like there was like no tomorrow, like yeah. all of them. That's so, brimming I mean, ashtray. How my nanny Mabel survived until her 90s. My grandma didn't. She died in her 60s, as did uh, my granddad died in his 60s. How she, uh, my nanny Mabel, had survived in that household, I have no idea, but she did. Lungs of uh, steel, by the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely must have had lungs of steel. But they, they smoked all the time. And also, we always had to show a kindness to random cousins. Uh, like, she would also look after, like, you know, your second, third cousin, like cousin Danielle, yeah. who was grumpy. And she was like, you've got to be nice to her. She doesn't have a nice house like you. My nan's house is always full of my cousins and us. We yeah. just stayed there all the time. Cause, and I, like you, when I was staying at my nan's a lot, my uh, great nan was there as well. But all my nans are called Wynne. So my mum's <coughs> my mum's mum was called Wynne. I didn't know my that. Nan's, my nan's mum was called Wynne. My dad's mum was called Wynne, Winnie, Winifred. And then my stepdad's mum was called Winifred. Jesus. Well, we had an we had an auntie Win. So many Winifreds. My nanny Peggy, her auntie Joyce, who was married to her brother... Uh, so was her sister-in-law. She, I, I mean, it, uh, this is how loose this is. Is that so? Auntie Joyce wasn't really related to us through anything but marriage, and then having children who became cousins to my dad. Yeah. Her sister was called Win, but she was Auntie Win. But I mean, this is a working-class thing: is you must call everybody Auntie and Uncle, yeah, even yeah. if they yeah, just yeah. lent your dad their ladders <laughs> in 1972. Yeah. Like always. Uncle Chris, who lives over the road from my mum and dad. Not my uncle at all, no <laughs> relation whatsoever. Uh, but he's Uncle Chris, Auntie Pat, a- Auntie Sue, Uncle yeah, Mick, yeah. like the, these <laughs> people. And I would ne- I would never be able to say their names. Sometimes now that I'm a member of Parliament, they email me and they don't <laughs> sign it off like Auntie Sue. And I'm like that, oh, God, oh. I don't know who that's from. <laughs> <laughs> so you lived with your nan for quite a long time, did you? Yeah, yeah. How so old I were would, you like? I mean, I, I would go home in the evenings at like seven o'clock, but... Um, yeah, from the age of naught till I was about five. And she died when I was seven. Mm. And my granddad died when I was about four. Uh, but yeah, uh, she moved, actually. She So she, I'm, afra- I'm afraid to say this, uh, my granny was a massive Thatcherite. Um, <gasps> and um, she bought that council house and immediately sold it, like <laughs> almost everybody does when they buy a council yeah, house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she moved to closer to where we lived and then died almost immediately. It's interesting you talk about your nan being a Thatcherite, like because I've got a lot of working class family that have voted Conservative for years from that sort of Thatcherite kind of era. What was it about that time that do you think working class people? I mean, how I don't understand as a working class person myself how you connect with a Conservative. I just don't. It's funny you know. because my nan, my nan lived around the corner, so I'm Garrett's great. So, but they're both these houses are in my constituency. My nan lived in what she would have called Yardley proper. And if you'd said anything else, she would have been pissed off. Right. Um, in a bought house. My dad, the amount of ribbing that my dad would give my mum about being from a bought house was untrue. Right. Oh, well, she would say that she's from a bought house. <laughs> um, so, I mean, they bought it for like £12 in, 19, in 1930. Yeah, but, but never you know, mind, yeah. Um, 
12 pounds. We couldn't have imagined it. I know, can my you dad imagine? would say. Um, but she lived literally like round the corner from Garrett's Green Lane where my granny lived. And my nan and granddad on my mum's side were total socialists. They were die-in-the-wall um, union activists. Um, and my granddad, Eric, funnily enough, he was a Labour, um, he was a Labour supporting man, again, from the union movement. But my granny, and I asked my, my dad is such like a devout socialist and my mm. uncle Graham, his brother, similarly is a devout socialist. And I'm like, how did you end up being devout socialist growing up in this house of, you know, like sort of neo-Thatcherism? Yeah. And what I would say is that they live their lives like socialists, as most working class people do. Yep. Mm. Uh, whether their politics is socialist or not, they're yep. there. So my nan was like, you know, she was the, the head of all the committees on the, the you know, the, the council estate, like tenants associations and things. She was always trying to improve. She'd have given her last bean to anyone, even black people who she was undoubtedly not that, that kind about in her language, uh, as many working class people of that era were not. Whereas my nan... My nanny, who lived around the corner in the bought house, she, I mean, it's exactly the same house. In fact, my grandma's house was bigger, but nonetheless. But um, (laughs) Nonetheless, it was hers. My nan, like, chained herself to, like, the railings when the South African team wouldn't let uh, black people play. So, you know, they're very, very different people. Yeah. But my grandma Peggy, my dad always says when I ask him, he says that it was um, to do with empire. Is what right. he thinks. Right. So basically, my there were these three women left uh, that, who raised me when I was very little. And they were left because everybody had died. Uh, and everybody had died in either the First or the Second World mm. War. And my great-grandfather, my uh, two of my uh, uncles, you know, in the sort of Gallipoli landings. And, and, you know, there was both First and Second World War deaths. And it just basically left this shell where the women, only the women were left. And and for me, that was very formative because I just thought everybody's family is run by essentially a group of harried and women. Because women, yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. for them, I think it was this sort of commitment to God, the Queen and the country that Mrs Thatcher tapped into so successfully. And also the idea of buying their council house definitely yeah, appealed to my nan. Yeah, you can do better. Yeah, you can better yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. my nan already had a bought house she was so fancy I mean so fancy that she was put in service she was literally enslaved (laughs) my nan uh and put in service to a rich posh aunt because her dad didn't want her after her mum had died so it's not not like she had like the greatest life ever um however yeah like so you know I was raised by these women who'd been through a huge amount of collective and individual trauma yeah. And did you grow up in like a very political household yourself? Yes. Like were your parents very political? Yes, very. And when my grandma come round, my dad would just argue with her constantly about it. Yeah. Um I mean, very, 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 very political. We were, you know, I was raised on a picket line basically or or with a CND thing tattooed on my face. You can probably still see it from <laughs> the years of I, I mean, we used to do like balloon releases for the environment. How naive we were. Well, no. <laughs> I mean the irony there. <laughs> We'd release a balloon for anything back then. <laughs> How was school for you, Jess? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I went to my local uh, primary, my primary school, and that was um, in what now, hilariously, the area I went to primary school in. 
and the primary school I went to is now the kind of primary school that people move in order to get their oh, children uh, right. into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but it, it basically has a feeder of three large council estates that are no longer council estates, but sure. are full of people who can't afford to live in their Victorian houses uh, in that bit of Birmingham. And so it's very, very middle class now, funnily enough. But when I went there, it was. Uh, the feederist of 1980s, Sink Estates, essentially, a place right. called Allen's Croft, uh, Waldron's Moor, where, near where I grew up. Uh, and so at, at primary school, I was genuinely one of the poshest kids, uh, like by quite a considerable amount. My dad was a teacher. Uh, and even though, you know, my, my family are thoroughly working class, we lived in this house that then my mum had to go back and work to try and afford but I really loved primary school. I absolutely loved it. But it would be unrecognisable now, the school that I went to. Unrecognisable for the sort of kids that go there. And I, and I take it you were academic? I was always really clever. And I had a teacher, funnily enough, called Mrs Furman, who um, I'm best friends with her daughter, so I still see her. Oh, how nice. And, and when I was, she was my teacher in reception... And she obviously, she just spotted me as being sort of bright, sparky and clever. Uh, and she was a member of the Labour Party and I used to rant about politics at the age of four. Wow. Uh, and, and she really, really, really pushed me like she made me, like she was like, you're a clever kid, you, you should, you know, do whatever you can to make it in the world. Uh, so yeah, uh, and then I went to the grammar school. Yeah. So um, so what you like took your eleven pluses and got I took into grammar my eleven school. plus. In Birmingham, yeah. we have a system of free grammar schools. Uh, you don't pay for them, and my parents were dead against me going, but I'm re- I was really competitive and still am, and really wanted to take my test, and then I got in. So I went to the grammar school, but I have to say, even that's changed now. Even that when I went to uh, the grammar school that I went to, whilst lots of kids were from the posher bits of Birmingham, it was still much more mixed. And now it's not, it's just people who've been, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I think they've, they've just in the last couple of years made a real effort to get more pupil premium kids in. But for a spell, it got to be just kids who like could afford all the tutoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah I never had any tutoring. I remember we went on holiday, uh, like the week before my exam, and my mum gave me a book she bought in WH Smith and said, ER, this is what your exam will be. That was my level of tutoring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because I know my mum, my brother was severely dyslexic. He's older than me, and we went to, we went to a really run-down school in Hounslow. It's still pretty run-down, bless it. Um, and my mum used to try really hard. She used to do, like, extra spelling tests, and she'd try, but my mum wasn't hugely academic. Like, she's a bright woman, but she's, mm. she's, not, she's not been... I mean, she left school at 14. Yeah, my parents too. Um, but she tried really hard. But, you know, what else can parents do if they can't afford that? Like, and if you're at a school where, you know, you get left behind if you're not very good at something, really, like, what really chance do you... I really, know, I've got a six-year-old, and I really, really noticed that. Like, so I went to, like, a terrible school and a big housing estate in South London. But in lockdown, I really noticed with my son, like, even within state schools, there's such a massive difference between schools. So, like, we went into lockdown and his school tried really, really hard, but they were doing appeals for, like, is there any chance anyone's got an old laptop that we could yeah. give to a family? Blah, blah, blah. And my mate's kids were going, oh, yes, you know, they've got their two hours of Mandarin online. Oh, no. And I was like, they're at a state school as well. Like, oh, it's not yeah. just state to it was a vast like difference. It, oh, the first difference. And a somehow vast, it was vast so... difference. Um, and my kids, my kids both go to, I mean, one of them's left now and so he's at college, but um, they both go to the local comprehensive uh, and it, it pulls from a very middle class area, the bit that I now live in. 
and um, one of the poorest areas in the country mm. uh, are the two uh, sort of areas that uh, of kids that go to this school and the difference uh, you can see in I remember doing a thing with a Tory MP about like fundraising for school and they were like well we go out to the parent community and I just thought yeah in Yardley <laughs> all you're going to get is requests yeah, yeah like the idea that people have got cash to spare to help the school buy books and things like I mean, and I'd, so I do appeals to posh people to buy books for schools yeah. in my constituency. Funnily enough, the husband of um, the woman who wrote uh, Fifty Shades of Grey gave me money to put books in the school. Not, Not Fifty Shades that of Grey. Book. <laughs> <laughs> you just go, children. Off you go. <laughs> reading is reading. <laughs> Reading, my father's an English teacher, he would say, reading anything reading, is worthwhile. Anything is... So you're at this grammar school and did you already have like aspirations to be, a... did you know you were going to be a yeah. politician? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, when I look back, I mean, I was, I was, I was quite wild at school um, as I just lectured the young women in the <laughs> yeah, news right. agents about smoking. I started smoking when I was 11 years old. Um, and uh, I was quite naughty. Uh, I wasn't naughty at school, like, because I was clever, yeah. essentially. If you go to a grammar school like the one I went to, if you're clever, you can get away with murder. If you're going to get the results, they don't care. Don't care. Yeah. Uh, so, but I would, yeah, I was quite wild at school, but I was very political. And recently, uh, somebody had put on Facebook, like, a thing from a yearbook. I don't even remember that we had a yearbook. It was definitely organised by people who were considerably less naughty than me. And it's it gave like, all our jobs for the future. It's deeply unfeminist. Like, I, I saw my mate Mairead and she was like, mine just said, I, I would marry. <laughs> and With the fingers crossed Marry emoji. a rugby player. Yeah, it's just like... Dudes, like we're, we're like really, we're like the top one percent of intelligent women in in oh the city. As marrying a rugby player seemed to be the aspiration, but mine said <laughs> that I would be the prime minister. I hope that's right. I'd like that to still come true. Just so, <laughs> if so you wouldn't mind. If there's any, I'm going to put a deep freeze full of cream horns in <laughs> number ten. Yeah, listen, there are worse things. <laughs> <laughs> Give them out. Um, so you go to uni and. Mm. Was that a good experience? Did you enjoy no, it? No, I, I didn't enjoy university at all. And actually, I put this down to, even though I went to a grammar school, and like I say, it was much more mixed. I mean, there was lots of middle-class people there, but much more mixed. Um, that When I went to university, it was the first time I ever encountered actual posh people. Yeah. Um, and I, it was a shock to me. I remember the... Um, Woman I live with, lovely woman called uh, Emily, who'd gone to, uh, she'd gone to uh, a private school in London. She, I remember her, her nan, I lived with her, she was lovely, but she, her nan used to send us like clippings from the Daily Mail. Uh, and uh, and so we, we, we always talked about her nan. And at one point her nan had gone like on a sort of like Buddhist holiday to Bali or Goa or somewhere. Lovely. And I was like, I have no concept of a person whose nan goes anywhere other than on a Sharabang holiday to Western. Yeah. Like that Caravan is as far holiday, as my nan it. ever yeah. went. And she only ever went on a coach. My nan never went out of the country. My nan never left the country. My grandma did, actually, funnily enough. My grandma Peggy did. She went and visited lots of the sites where like, where her brothers and her dad and were buried uh, yeah, because they'd been killed in that, the war. Yeah. yeah, so she she did that. 
Uh, but she went on a coach. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, you know, she went on a coach. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, I, I understood the concept of the baby boomer generation because my parents were essentially that. They were well-educated uh, people who were, who were born uh, into very working-class environments but had been given literally the very best of everything the welfare yeah. state had to offer post-1945 um, and, uh, and had therefore been able to provide much more for their own kids um, and, and, and not not much more actually much more isn't fair on my grandparents just a different culture like yeah, an yeah. opportunity for a different culture but the, the the idea that someone has a rich nan is like I'd never met a person with a rich no, nan no. also in my first year I lived in halls with a woman who went to Cheltenham Ladies College right again lovely woman no criticism of her <laughs> she went to Cheltenham Ladies College and she had never seen a donna kebab oh, get out stop. Do you know what? I lived with this um, rich woman. She won't mind me saying. She's always come from money. And I took some Dairy Lee Dunkers round (laughs) hers once. And she'd never seen a Dairy Lee Dunker. She was amazing. And she was like, Laura, what is this? Like, it was just (laughs) such a... I was really proud that I introduced her to some oh, Dairy Lee Dunkers. <laughs> and I love a Dairy Lee Dunker. But she was, yeah, like, she, we're outside this station chit shop and she was like, oh my God, what is that? And I was, I le- genuinely did not know what she was talking about. I was like, what, what, what? And she was like, what is that? What is that? And I was like, it's a Donna Kebab. Like, oh, actually, what? Jess, let me tell you this story quickly. We've got a mutual friend. She's quite posh, isn't she? She's sure, middle posh. class. She don't mind. Oh, she's lesser. She's always getting a bashing on here, isn't she? But she uh, <laughs> once saw some chips and uh, with some mushy peas on top. And yeah. she said to her boyfriend at the time, oh, look, Phil, they do chips and avocado. <laughs> that's, that's, We're talking a... back in like early 2000s, though, when I didn't even know what an avocado was, I'll be honest. I'd never I mean, that is, there is an apocryphal story about... Um, um, Peter Mandelson in the Labour Party. Uh, it's not true, but it's I, I like it so much where he thought it was guacamole. <laughs> yeah, let's of, say uh, it's true because it's funny. Yeah, let's say it's true. Who I mean, cares? He, it's definitely not true, but he agrees that it's a great enough story that we should <laughs> just say scary. it's true forever. But yeah, I had never met anybody. I'd never met anybody. And it, so it's a good, it, it was a good um, learning curve for Westminster right, because okay. I'd never met anybody who was posh. It's so amazing uni for that, isn't it? Because like, yeah. I went to uni and I was like, what on earth? Like people going, I remember going to a mate's house and he had a, um, uh, a lake in the middle of his house. I was like, this is how people, some people live with a lake. Yeah. Like he was like, oh, that, that's our lake. I and just thought he was a lovely, lovely, you were similar thing, right? lovely fella. And he said to me, he goes, oh, do you fancy um, coming skiing at Easter? And I was like, love. Like, I'm going back to London to get a job front of house in the theatre. Like, I can't be going skiing. And I was like, where have you got the money for that? And he goes, oh, you know, it's funny, isn't it, life? You sort of struggle to find the odd bits and bobs, but there's always money for skiing. And I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> there isn't, mate, no. I have the exact opposite thing. <laughs> like, if I wanted to go skiing, I wouldn't be able to find the money. But when the boiler's fucking broken... Yeah, sure. I'm like, well, how did I just have this £3,000 that I can now, now spend a waste on a bloody boiler? boiler it, with the working yeah. class, it's only ever really... You find your money for your fags if you smoke. Yeah. You always find your money for your fags, no that matter what. That is absolutely what. true. <laughs> Petrol money from down the side of the sofa just to get the car going. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, I, I, yeah, I'd never met... And there was a lad in my uh, history class. And, uh, actually, I started studying politics, but... I hated it because it was full of basically I just was expecting everybody to be socialist radicals and it was yes. full of conservatives yeah. uh, talking about like oh. John Maynard Keynes and John Stuart Mill basically white old men called John yeah. <laughs> and so I did social policy for a bit 
as an elective credit, and that had uh, some people from the prison in the class, Better. like that from Armley Prison in Leeds, well, yeah. uh, and this single mum who was a mature student, and we talked about benefits, and I was like, that okay, I'm going to move to social policy I found because my that, people. Like, this is much better. <laughs> but there was a lad in my politics class. Uh, who, because I'm the same age as Prince William, um, who uh, had been in Prince William's class at Eton wow. and his family, he never went home at the, uh, in the holidays because his family lived in Hong Kong. Yeah. I was like that. Yeah, very similar. Very <laughs> yeah. similar. We've got the same upbringing, basically. Well, Peggy's been away, you know, you never know. Yeah. She could have been in Hong Kong. <laughs> That's it. She's been to Gallipoli. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is quite a big leap, but you mentioned before about obviously like being in Westminster Every time we ask our guests about like imposter syndrome. Now, my God, if there's anywhere in the world as a working class person, you must be open to the idea of imposter syndrome. I mean, how was that when you first went into Parliament? Or had by then you sort of thought, no, I deserve to be here and this yeah, is my time? No, I think that, to be perfectly honest, uh, the reason I sort of decided to take the leap was I was working at Women's Aid and, I'd, uh, and we ran a female offenders service. Uh, when the government were privatising all female offender services. And I went to this briefing event about how they were going to sell off the package areas. It was at Birmingham Botanical Gardens. Oh, nice. uh, and uh, I went to this briefing event and um, the then Justice Secretary spoke and he was so shit. 
and he knew so little about what he was talking about. I thought, look, if he can be a member of parliament, I can, <laughs> you know, be the queen of the world. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I was very, very, I, I, I have remained very, very forthright. And this is still the case that on the things that I know about, I know more about it mm. than anyone in the building and so I very rarely on the subjects that I know and care about uh, feel imposter syndrome but when I first went there I was totally bowled over by the building obviously and mm -hmm. uh, and the grandeur of it um not not that it's really it, it's not posh actually it's literally falling apart and it's full of mice um oh. I've definitely worked in better offices <laughs> but um like the history of it is mm. is overwhelming mm. And that history is very posh and very male yeah. in lots of circumstances. But I just felt defiant about that. I do feel, I still feel imposter syndrome about things that definitely people like me don't go out and talk about. Uh, and that's things like, you know, sort of high level foreign affairs is, 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 is the pursuit of people whose dads live in Hong Kong in the diplomatic yeah, service sure. yeah, and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, I don't, I don't know what the diplomatic service was before I was elected. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just thought like one of my mates once got banged up in jail in Ibiza and we <laughs> went to the consular. <laughs> he was freed. I mean, that's foreign affairs, right? <laughs> that was, what, that was my interaction with like, that was my interaction with, you know, our man abroad yeah, yeah. was that, you know, occasionally... I'd known people getting criminal <laughs> trouble in a different country. Brilliant. But, you know, so I do still, I do still feel, but I, I just, even when I feel it, I sort of take power from the people who are actually affected by it. So the sort of Afghanistan crisis, my constituency is full of Afghan families. Um, and so I take their being the person who knows more about it than anyone in the building. I sort of take that and wear it as a badge when I'm having to do those things. Uh, yeah, you definitely, I definitely feel imposter syndrome. But the, the posher the people are that I come across, the wilder I grow. It's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I am like a, a dangerous, like I misbehave appallingly. Like I will grow into like an animal <laughs> of being like, you're not better than me. And that comes from, it's not even particularly a chip on my shoulder. I wouldn't even describe it as that. But my, because I've got three older brothers, my, my parents drilled into me every single day of my life. There's nothing they can do that you can't do. Oh, you know, you're yeah. going to... And it turned me into a bit of a monster. Uh, but that definitely has helped me not feel about particular class um, boundaries. And, and we talk about this a lot about how we speak like Hannah's a theatre director and she's been judged for, you know, having a South London accent and wearing a hoop every day by, you know, rich white men on a theatre board or whatever. Yeah. Um, how did you find it? Cause obviously you've got a really prominent accent, a working yeah. class one, which, you know, that was one of the first reasons when I heard you speak for the first time, I, I become so like engaged with you and engaged in what you were speaking about and, and, and politics in itself have you had assumptions yourself? I'm sure you have. I think oh, I've even yeah. read bits get, about I, how... Yeah, I get assumptions that I'm stupid because... Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, actually, funnily enough, one of the biggest assumptions people make because I have um, a, a regional accent is that I am, like, very, very, very working class yeah. in, in, in actual fact. Yeah. Uh, where... Um, and this is a very, very southeast thing, is that if you have an accent in the southeast you are working class. That's yeah, just the case. Because, agree, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, it's a sort of non... You either have that generic posh accent 
uh, or you speak estuary English. Those are the two options yeah. in the southeast. Whereas in Newcastle, middle class people speak with a Geordie accent. <laughs> yeah. And in Birmingham, middle class people speak with a Birmingham accent. Yeah. Like, you know, but but because everything is so southeast centric, lots of assumptions are made about you. But yeah, people people assume I'm stupid. People assume I've spelt things wrong. So the the, the one that pisses me off the most, because it is my actual name, uh, according to the two most important people to me in the world, is that I say mom and I spell it M-O-M. And that's what everybody in Birmingham does. And people <laughs> like, if, if mummy is terribly posh to us. Like, oh, the idea of being called mum. I oh, know, my mum said that, don't ever call me mum. I've never said mummy, no. It feels yeah, weird exactly. for me, I know. <laughs> um, but people assume I've spelt it wrong because I'm stupid. I'm like, no, I'm just from fucking Birmingham. Yeah. it's actually, Yeah, my mate's from Birmingham. She's like, it's, she said she always gets corrected. When she it's wants to very annoying. As if you're going to, like, by your age and all the things you've achieved, not know how to spell it. This is my name. This <laughs> is my name. I know how to spell it. It's I am so, mom. Like, so that ridiculous. is what my sons call me. Yes. I know how to spell it, it's you idiot. Three, well, it's actually two letters. One yeah. repeated. And, and, and actually, that wouldn't happen to people from Newcastle who say mam. Like, no. that is accepted. Whereas the fact that I say mom is not accepted. And I have to, I've, I had to get like Hansard, the people who write up everything that we say in Parliament. I, had to, I have to get them to correct it every time. And it's like, so annoying. But um, yeah, people make assumptions about me all the time. They make assumptions that, um, that I'm stupid. Another one we get is crass. Oh, yeah, we're crass. Oh, yeah, I was yeah, in yeah. a comedy double act, and we were quite old-fashioned, actually, and a bit sort of French and Saunders-like, very sort of harmless fun, wasn't it? And one of our reviews said we were like a couple of cockney birds having a fight outside a kebab shop, and it was actually yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's what we got all the time. I get a lot of that. I also, You also get, like, firebrand. Now, I am actually a bit of a firebrand, so that, 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 that <laughs> I don't mind so much, but the reality is is that you only think that because you, you when I speak, what you hear is that I'm being caustic. Yeah. yeah, And black women get this all the time, like mm. the idea that it's aggressive, yeah. Yeah. what they're saying, yeah. um, even though they just might be saying, pass me the milk. But the way it's heard is that they're sucking their teeth while asking somebody, like, it's just yeah. like, it's a horrible uh, thing. But yeah, I, that I'm aggressive, I get quite a lot just because I have a regional accent. And you know what and, you want. And, and in some cases I am a bit aggressive. Uh, and to be honest, because I come from very tough, willing to fight their corner, working class women and men. I imagine to polite society, I might come across as being a bit caustic, but why would you assume that that was the thing that was wrong? Yeah. Why is the default pretending that nothing bad has happened? The default the default of politeness is pretending nothing bad has happened. Yeah. And it's just like, well, that never solved anything, did it? Pretending that nothing's happened. We often speak to our guests who've got kids about this. Like, are your kids having, have they had a very different upbringing to you? Yes. Completely yes. <laughs> uh, yes, they've had a completely and utterly different. I mean, I have incredibly working class uh, roots and upbringing, but by, by comparison to my husband, I'm Lady of the Manor. Right. Uh, he was born in social housing. He similarly doesn't have um like he didn't go to school really past um his, i mean he did go to college past his a levels but he learned to skin up better than he learned to do anything else <laughs> um and he has a manual job he's a uh, he's a lift engineer and now does like i actually don't know really what he does stuff something to do with building stuff uh, <laughs> and um my husband went on like one foreign holiday in his entire childhood so 
Whereas my children, like the sort of expectation that we will go away at least once a year, like on holiday. The biggest thing for me is the, when I was a kid, I remember like once a year we'd go and it felt like we were like driving all the way to Wolverhampton or somewhere, but it probably wasn't because you have no concept of car journeys when mm. you're a kid. Um, but we would go out for one dinner a year like a, in a restaurant and it had to be like for a, a major event yeah and like you'd go to an Indian or a Chinese those were the two options but um my kids eat out all the time but the thing yeah. that really gets me is their expectation that we will stop at every service station on a journey uh, and <laughs> yes. they will buy things. So I remember true. once being outside, like, I don't know, Chilton Services on the M40 being like, we're raising twats. They just, you know, like, <laughs> I'm really worried that we're raising children with terrible privilege. Now, luckily, both my children, um, of their friends, they are undoubtedly the poshest without question. Right. Uh, they, Like I say, they went to state school and... All of their friends at school are, you know, my older son, like all of his uh, friends at school pretty much were the Muslim kids from the other bit of where the school pulls from. And he definitely recognises that he is privileged and lucky. Is that important for you to instill that in them? I mean, that's oh, kind of, yeah. 100%. I'd be really pleased that they've got those friends, you know. Yeah, I'd be yeah, so yeah, pleased yeah, yeah. No, and like, encouraging My, my older son actually came down to London for a bit to uh, go to a film school here because we don't have that in Birmingham um, when he was 16. And he just said, like, it was a different world. It was a different, like, it was in Islington. And he was just like... Because there's posh and then there's London posh and those yeah, right. two things are different. Yeah, oh, totally. Like being middle class in London and being middle class in Birmingham are as different as day and night. Like, you know, the sort of standard idea of going to a private school just doesn't exist in Birmingham. Not at all. That's not a thing. Even middle class people don't send their kids to private school in um, in Birmingham. Wow, OK. And, and, and middle class people in Birmingham are like teachers and social workers. Yeah. Whereas middle class people in London are like high court judges or people who run television production companies. And, right. yeah. uh, and so my, my son, um, definitely, he found it uh, like he was like, wow, this is a different world. That was a bit like his university moment. Yeah. But yeah, it's really important for me that they stay humble and grounded in the sort of culture that both me and their dad uh, came from. Although I feel we failed. <laughs> <laughs> and are they political? Uh, they're political. Um, I mean, my my seventeen year old is political the way that all woke seventeen year olds are political. Yeah, um, sure, sure. Oh my god! Sometimes I'm just like, give it a rest. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, they. But yeah, I mean, they 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 campaign and stuff. They don't have quite. Funnily enough, they don't have quite such a political upbringing as the one that I had. Yeah. But um, they're not fighting for anything, are they? Because I suppose they've got a seat at the table. Whereas we yeah. were in the 80s and Thatcher, the Thatcher government in working class households, we were fighting for something. So it was very political. Mm. But yeah, they, they are. But neither of them will ever end up being politicians. God, no, they'd rather be dead. <laughs> it's such an interesting thing you were saying there because I went to uni up in Hull and I was like the first person in my family to go to uni. And like I said, I went to a, a, a big comp on a housing estate in South London. And then when I got up to uni, I worked doing a needle exchange, very glamorous, on a, a housing estate in Hull. And the difference between this housing estate in Hull and this housing estate that was considered oh, yeah. very, very rough 
in South London. I thought I was quite worldly that I had experienced. But this, the deprivation yeah. in that housing estate in Hull was... Like, I'd never seen anything like that and I wasn't growing up. I hadn't gone to and you're not, it. was yeah, yeah. You're not one minute away from... Like, in London, every corner I turn and I you know I live in I, I live since I've moved down to London to be in Westminster first of all, I started living in Brixton and now I live in Walthamstow I essentially like to live at the extremities of the Victoria line yeah, yeah, I really <laughs> want I really want a seat on the tube is uh, essentially <laughs> line, the reason line, why that is the case <laughs> but like even in the deprived areas there is like a council playground like that yeah. doesn't exist where I live Right. Like, yeah. you know, like that. Yeah. And if it does, it's got one broken swing um, yeah. and it's covered in needles. Like, you know, that the, the, the level of facilities that London has and therefore opportunity for seeing the world in a different way to maybe the one that you see in the four walls of your house yeah. is completely different to other parts of the country. Completely different. Yeah. But even in London, like... It, and I'm a theatre director, right? So there's mm. not many more middle-class things you mm. could do. And I feel like an oddity in, in my industry all the time because I'm a woman and, you know, and because I didn't go to Eton. Mm. But yet, I still feel, and I know there were those housing estates in Hull and Birmingham, yeah. and that never in my lifetime have I felt that there is a government that doesn't understand the way that we live or the average person lives so much as I feel now. And I grew up no, in a very political household too, but I have yeah. never felt That's that. absolutely right. Even so, I mean, it's like Trump made you miss George W. Bush. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, like yeah. Thatcher wouldn't have dreamed of the things that this government no. thinks, actually. Yeah. She wouldn't have dreamed of it. And, and you know, she was no saviour of estates in london or no. around the country without question but you're you're absolutely right there, there's never been a time where um a, a, and they've managed somehow to convince lots of the people who live in those sorts of places that it's somebody's fault other than exactly governments and that is pernicious like it's, that um, is really it, pernicious it feels really disheartening and without hope i'll be honest you know it's like it just feels really hopeless at the moment also like things like the arts and stripping away education for the masses mm. that would include arts music like you mm. know that they're they're, they're 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 becoming much more even so than any other point in my life yeah. middle-class pursuits yeah, yeah oh, for, sure, um, for sure and the schools in my constituency work so hard to try and buck that trend but the, the t head teachers are leaving and things because they're just like it's an assault on our communities. Like yeah. it is just dreadful. So, yeah, that that's absolutely the case. The idea that you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And in London, there is just mm. more to see. So even if you're in a crappy situation, there's more jobs around you to see, not even just like at your access to be able to get a job. But you, you're more likely to come across people with a variation of employments and things and more access to arts, culture, that sort of thing just doesn't exist. Uh, uh, and it takes a huge amount of investment in that sort of thing to change that. And that is just, there's none of that. Yeah. There's, I mean, the security conversation about members of parliament comes up all the time. And somebody said to me, well, you should only hold, um, it was a London MP said to me, you should... Well, only hold your surgeries in council buildings. I said, there aren't any council buildings in my constituency. Yeah, They've like all gone. That lack of knowing no. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, you know, so in my constituency, which serves like 150,000 people, there is no neighbourhood office left anymore. There is no, there is no council building. There is no, there is nothing. There is me. That's it. 
And it makes the fight feel impossible, doesn't it? Yeah. To match them All to get vital. I feel like we're never gonna get them out. Yeah, it is vital. Vital. It yeah, just makes see. you it's just gotta make you fight yeah. for it more. And and I hate that I can feel now that I am wealthy, that a conservative government makes me richer. And my <laughs> husband said that to me once. He was like Oh, God, like we were going to renegotiate our mortgage or something. And he was just like, oh, God, I can feel myself benefiting from their policies. Yeah, I know. And he was just like, that is just horrendous. Now, in my husband's family, you say you were the first. That's never happened. Yes. Nobody in my husband's family has ever gone to university. And so my children have decided in loyalty to them that they won't go either. (laughs) I love that. I'm like, that's not the point. (laughs) Sticking with team, Dad. Oh, we're going to have to let you go, Jess. Um, I mean, honestly, we could say so many things I could keep talking about. The list is endless, obviously. We could go (laughs) on and on. Um, We just always wrap up the show asking our guests if there's a working class hero, unsung hero, they would like to celebrate this week. Who'd that be for you? Yeah. Often I would, I would, I would say my mum, but on this instance, I'm going to say my mother-in-law who died sadly about three months ago uh, of a heart attack. And I, I can't help but, she was only six, she was 66. Mm. I can't help but think her mum died of a stroke at 66. And I just cannot help but think, had she not grown up in the environment that she grew up in, maybe she'd still be alive. Mm. Uh, and that there is a class element to women who, uh, like my mother-in-law who die of heart disease and other such uh, illnesses. But she, uh, yeah, she's going to be my working class hero. She was everything that people think working class people aren't. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was born in a caravan in Coventry. She grew up in a housing estate in my constituency and she left school at 15. Uh, She worked two jobs uh, around going to school. She worked uh, selling potatoes door to door, uh, from the local pub after school and before mm. school she ran the breakfast at the Wesley Hotel which is still there the Macadam pub has sadly been knocked down and she was the only woman she had three brothers and she ran away to London at like 16 because she was basically expected to be the slave of her family uh, she grew up doing midnight flits from the catalogue man um, <laughs> and uh, but as an adult like she was she was into everything she worked at the arts council she was an administrator at the arts council for 20 years uh towards the end of her life but she was she was an artisan she mm. cared about crafts and the arts and she was in the birmingham opera she was wow. uh in the chorus of the birmingham opera she w- she would put herself forward for anything she she spent ages learning to make victorian cyanotype photography she got herself a degree in photography oh, wow. she was bright and clever and learned and she could talk about most esoteric arts and crafts movement or she could lecture the poshest man on earth about public art and she had no education, no qualifications, uh, was expected to work in a typing pool for the rest of her life. And um, she, yeah, you know, I, I, I miss her dreadfully, but I am surrounded by the arts that she made for me and my kids. And she was not, I remember once she said, people say I'm not working class anymore because I eat couscous. <laughs> she was like that, still working class. 
just like couscous. Just didn't <laughs> exist in the 1950s. Oh, what um, amazing woman. Well, I said it did amongst working class communities in Morocco. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. but, <laughs> so she would be my working class hero. She was everything that the government and successive establishments don't know that working class yeah. people are. She's that despite all of, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But what wonderful. And what was her name, Jess? Diana Phillips. Well, we're celebrating Diana Phillips mm-hmm. and you, Jess Phillips, today. Thank you so much for coming just, on the Copper uh, Class podcast. Just before we go, I just wanted to say, like, we really meant that at the beginning. Like, a big listening to you speak was a big reason we started this podcast. And yeah. I'm sure you know this already, but, like, having you up there, not just speaking for us, but speaking like us means so, so much. Oh, and you're uh, very welcome. Keeps us keeping on. So And, and please <laughs> keep going. And um, I, will. I, I really hope you get your childhood ambition and become our Prime Minister, because fuck knows we need it. We need someone really, like you I'm gonna there. I'm going to take a few years, though, because, like... It's, it's all right. You don't like... want this mess. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let them clean up their own bloody mess. Yeah, and then, then I'll do swoop it. in for yeah. the glory years. We'll oh. be there raising the glass <laughs> when you do. Jess, thank you so thank much. You it's been so a massive honour. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks so much. Hannah. <laughs> I know that was a very big moment for, for the both of us, but I think especially for you, um, I think I know we both discovered just similarly time, but I know that you you're just a huge admirer, aren't you, of what she's doing? Yeah, a huge admirer of the work she's doing, obviously, particularly with women and girls and all the domestic mm. abuse, like how much noise she's making about that issue. But also, you know, just to... I've always... I've had a very political upbringing in a similar way, but just to see somebody up there who I feel like really gets us, represents us, mm. sounds like mm. us, you know, and, and can sit there and talk in a way and, and just make us still feel absolutely like politics is for us about us um uh, yeah i'm a i'm a, a huge huge fan and the truth is if more politicians were like her or were allowed to be um i i think more people would get out there and vote actually more people like you know my family members that don't vote and stuff i think they would they feel like oh yeah we we have a voice because we have a voice through that woman right there who gets us who knows us who lives amongst us an absolute hero and um i'm actually still shaking (laughs) so (laughs) i really hope you enjoyed that um episode folks as much as we did so that's it for this week what a week i know but uh worry not listener we have another amazing guest for you next week so uh Enjoy yourself and Lord, you want to say it? I suppose you do. Of course. Keep it classy, guys. Keep it classy. The Proper Class Podcast is produced by Michelle Farscott for Ranga B Productions, edited by James Torrance, with music by Tommy Music. Just to let you know, folks, the Proper Class podcast is now going weekly. And whilst I've got you here, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbours, whoever will listen. We've also got an Instagram page. Ooh, get us. And you can follow all the news and goss at the Proper Class podcast. And if you haven't nodded off yet, we've also gone and got ourselves an official email. So do get in touch. The email is properclasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, keep it classy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.